0: Welcome to the BodyWise podcast. My name is Ellen Jennings, Communications Officer with BodyWise. In this episode, we speak to eating disorders organisations from around the world to hear about their experiences of supporting people during COVID-19. We will hear voices from Ireland, the UK, Canada, the US and Australia to gain an insight into what it's been like on the ground, how people with eating disorders and their families have been impacted, how the organisation has been impacted and what the main challenges have been over the past 18 months. Please note there's reference to abusive situations contained within this podcast. Firstly, you'll hear from Barry, Research and Policy Officer here at Bodywise, followed by voices from around the world.
1: The coronavirus pandemic has resulted in a lot of difficulties for people affected by eating disorders and their families. Risk factors have increased whilst protective factors have been taken away. During this time, we've seen increased hospitalizations, often with people being more unwell, along with people struggling at home or on their own. No matter where people are in the world, the challenges are similar.
2: My name is Elizabeth Altunkara, and I'm the Director of Support Services at the National Eating Disorders Association or NIDA. I oversee our information and treatment option helpline. I make sure that all daily operations are running smoothly I also report on the helpline data and monitor the helpline volume closely so that we can make decisions about coverage accordingly and identify our community's needs. At the beginning of the pandemic, especially in March and April of 2020, we actually first saw a decline in our volume. You know, This was really the period where people were trying to understand what was happening and also trying to comprehend and adjust to all the changes happening in their lives. And right after this this period, we started being a big jump on on our volume that continues up until now. So when I say a big jump, I'm referring to over 50% uh, increase in our volume. And we can anticipate that as you can uh, also imagine, the effects of the pandemic on mental health will be felt for many more years. And this has been a challenging time for our community Since the pandemic created this environment in which individuals suffering from eating disorders relapse, had their symptoms worsened, or those who were at risk to develop an eating disorder started struggling with disorder eating, which in the end turned into a full-blown eating disorder definitely the pandemic increased the depressive symptoms and anxiety that everybody felt, but especially for our community, for people who were struggling with eating disorders or disorder eating, this kind of created the perfect storm in a way to engage into these behaviors or feel this way even worse. Yeah, I mean, I think you really described it very nicely, kind of saying that risk factors increase and the protective factors decrease. And if you think about it, even the way we eat during the pandemic has changed. And especially that anxiety, thinking about the scarcity of food maybe you know that that was a concern for people in the u.s What if you know i cannot go out to the grocery store and buy food and so th- this anxiety and you know eating disorders are not just about food but it's 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 one of the symptoms and you know the way people are engaging uh, with their emotions or feelings so even that restriction or that um, situation really increased their anxiety and that's why they started to engage in behaviors Um, so yeah I mean it affected everything in our lives so even even you know the pandemic changed everything and also impacted everyone who was um, who didn't even have a mental illness let alone people who were struggling with with an eating disorder.
3: My name is Ranjini Utpala, and I'm the clinical director of Butterfly Foundation. In my role, I'm responsible for the kind of overall strategy and governance of the suite of clinical and support services that we offer here at Butterfly. We started to notice increasing challenges for people relatively early on in the pandemic. In Australia, as you may know, many of our major cities experienced the first lockdown sort of around April or May 2020, and it was apparent that there was a fair amount of anxiety in the community in general, but certainly within the eating disorders community that we service, I suppose that sort of anxiety really in relation to you know, the uncertainty that was surrounding the pandemic as it was unfolding across the globe, I suppose, and also, you know, the anxieties around disruption that was caused by the first lockdowns. I imagine this is probably similar to what you might have experienced yourselves um, in Ireland and what your teams might have noticed as well. But there was a lot of disruption, especially around food availability, access to shop and shopping people weren't able to leave their homes people weren't able to access support in ways that they were used to accessing support and also access to kind of opportunities for exercise or even meeting with their loved ones so kind of when we talk about the support both the formal as well as the informal support to not being able to access loved ones really created a lot of uncertainty a lot of anxiety and distress for those with eating disorders And also at the same time, I guess, touching on that, you know, what we know is that the level of distress that our contacts were presenting with was also much higher. And, you know, we kind of heard from the community stories around more acute presentations, relapses, as you kind of noted earlier. So those sort of three things, you know, more acute presentations, relapses, and first-time presentations of eating disorders, as well as disordered eating, were happening on our helpline especially we're seeing a lot of that come through as well people that were contacting us were speaking about again distress associated not just with the eating disorder and the increase in symptoms or risk but also now there was the added challenge of not being able to get to their physician get to their treatment team not having support in the way that um, they were used to having so my name's Shan
4: Ogle and I work for the Eating Disorder Association in Northern Ireland and I am a project worker. Our organization's peer support, so it's also sometimes called a peer support worker as well. So I joined the organisation as an employee in May of 2021, but before that I was a volunteer ambassador for the charity. So I would say that I first really started to notice that people on the ground were really struggling was when I was still a volunteer during that first lockdown. Some people were becoming unwell for the first time, others were struggling in recovery, and you know, some were also relapsing after a long period of wellness as well.
5: So, I'm Caitlin Axelrod, I am a social worker, and I'm the program and outreach coordinator at Sheena's Place. So, Sheena's Place is a community mental health charity, and we provide professionally facilitated group support to people affected by eating disorders in our province of Ontario in Canada. We suspended our programs at Sheena's Place only for two weeks when the pandemic started in March 2020. So we were able to get a pretty quick sense of how folks were coping when we resumed our groups on April 1st, 2020. So a lot of the changes, of course, when the pandemic began were quite sudden, you know, concerns about health and contracting COVID changes in routine, the loss of formal and informal supports, and just general uncertainty. So we could definitely see this having an immediate impact on our group members. Some things that folks have talked about as uh, you know, recurring themes and groups, let's say, are the re-emergence of old symptoms as coping strategies or new eating disorder symptoms and a lot of frustration about this a lot of feelings of shame and guilt around progress with recovery that's something that's been coming up a lot and i think that really speaks to how eating disorders are or the symptoms are quite you know logical responses to quote-unquote disordered situations or unusual or traumatic situations like a pandemic so going back to things that, you know, provide comfort or help a person feel safe, it makes sense and it causes for a lot of people, you know, a lot of frustration around that.
6: I'm Nicola Armstrong. I'm the National Officer for BEAT in Northern Ireland. A lot of what I do involves raising awareness of eating disorders, and making sure that people affected by eating disorders in Northern Ireland are aware that BEAT are there to support them. No doubt about it, the, the pandemic has had a very negative impact on people with are vulnerable to eating disorders. We know that some people have developed an eating disorder for the first time. Some have relapsed, and those with an existing eating disorder have found symptoms worsening in a lot of cases. Anecdotally, we know that many of our supporters have experienced increased anxiety and isolation, for example. Also, things like the loss of their normal routine, And until recently, the ongoing lockdown and uncertainty on when normal life can resume. People with eating disorders frequently do mention the sense of isolation that they have. And before the lockdown, of course, that didn't necessarily mean physical isolation. It meant the difficulty they would have had in relating to people and their peers, the nature of the illness, meaning that, you know, certain behaviours, for example, there's a lot of secrecy in and around people's behaviours, what they do um, as part of the, the illness. But then also to have that physical isolation suddenly thrust upon people. It's not surprising that some people felt they did go into a bit of a tailspin themselves. And even if you're not the most gregarious of people, even those little interactions that you would have in the supermarket, nipping out for a paper, that, so, you know, were obviously not happening as often, you know, for many people was very, very challenging.
1: I know as well, because of what's happened, additional responsibilities then come down to the family who have to, had to take on more responsibility in kind of doing the medical monitoring at home that would have previously been taken place in a clinic. And I know there's been another piece around people who would have been inpatient, not getting visitors and that kind of sort of thing as well. So I don't know. Is that something you've heard?
4: Families have been really, really affected and a quarter of our emails in August were either from children under the age of 18 or from their family members. And some of the concerns that they would talk about are, you know, worries that families would have maybe had before the pandemic. For example, they're struggling to understand what their loved one is going through, you know, knowing what to say and how to help and who to turn to for support. But I think what is different this time is that more parents are coming to us when they've maybe been turned away from everywhere else and they're feeling a bit despairing, maybe by their GP or their services, or maybe they can't afford private care, which is quite concerning for us because we're a peer support organisation. You know, we're not professionally trained to diagnose or treat eating disorders or deliver therapy. We're always there to provide emotional support to people and their families, but typically that obviously works best alongside that specialist intervention. And I think that feeling of kind. Kind of maybe a wee bit of hopelessness is especially true for families who have a loved one with an eating disorder like binge eating disorder or our fed And I think that families have felt increasingly isolated in their experience, which is linked to that general social isolation that we've all seen. And on top of this, you know, we know that the pandemic has really increased the number of people exposed to risk factors that negatively impact all aspects of mental health. So everyone in the family may be struggling in their own difficulties and experiencing their own challenges, which is obviously really difficult when when there's a number of people that are unwell as well
2: parents or caretakers of a child with an eating disorder had to take on uh, the role of a teacher and a treatment provider doing medical checks, monitoring weight and providing support during meals. So as you can imagine, this created multiple challenges for the families and often created some tension as well. So we know that support is essential to eating disorder recovery. However, having your parents as your treatment team changed the dynamics within families um, and managing, managing all these roles added extra stress to the family system. And in addition to this, we've heard from families who had their loved one in an inpatient or residential facility setting and couldn't visit their loved ones due to no visitor policies. And this didn't only exacerbated the isolation felt by patients, but also families' anxiety as they were not able to provide any support to their loved one. In Individuals who need in-person services or treatment are somewhat at a better place when residential and uh, inpatient facilities increase their capacity. However, as I mentioned before, there's still a wait list and some patients need to wait uh, for months and for weeks or even months.
3: We also kind of were hearing from carers who appeared to be struggling because suddenly there was a disruption in their loved one's ability to be able to access services And so carers were sort of also talking about not being able to support their loved ones as they struggled to navigate the challenges that were brought on by the lockdown and how this increased their own sense of kind of hopelessness and their own sense of worry and concern um, for their loved ones whom they were supporting. If you're not able to get to your treatment team in order to be reviewed, a lot of that burden also for things like weighing and supervising intake has fallen on families. And, you know, that's also understandably created a lot of tension in relationships, you know, and in relationships that may already have been under strain Or it has created new sort of strain and tension and discord amongst families and loved ones. So it's been sort of really, unfortunately and sadly, it's impacted in multiple ways, you know, the impact of COVID-19 on those with eating disorders and their loved ones has been quite significant in ways i I don't think i you know if you ask me these sort of questions in february 2020 and if we're thinking about predicting what do we think this is going to look like i don't think i saw i saw it coming that you know the impact was going to be so multi sort of faceted in some ways
5: you know family members having to maybe take on more of a direct or medical role in their loved one's recovery which can put a lot of strain on the relationship. You know, other things that have come up for family and partners has been those folks being affected in their own ways by the pandemic. So whether that's financially, stress and mental health, their routine being adjusted, this has put a strain on a lot of relationships and decreased the emotional availability that a lot of people have to support their loved ones. And so something that that continuously comes up in that group is you know, feelings of guilt or helplessness or hopelessness around not being able to support the loved one in the way that they feel like they should or that they want to.
6: We know that, I mean, research shows that if a family and a, a good support network is very actively involved in someone's recovery plan, what a difference that can make to a person living with an eating disorder. It really does help them make a, a full to sustained recovery quicker. No doubt about it. So yes, especially with those people in inpatient facilities, I mean, that's obviously very, very difficult for both the patient and the family. And I suppose the the lack of treatment in many cases during lockdown has meant families trying to help their loved one through an eating disorder have received very little guidance themselves, and that has obviously impacted on their own mental health to an extent too. So, you know, as well as that's the, that strain on a carer's mental health, no doubt has increased anxiety and isolation during lockdown.
1: What have been, kind of, from your perspective, the main challenges that have come up for people when you've been supporting them?
2: I guess one of the initial major challenges was access to treatment and additional support resources. Uh, Until virtual treatment options and online support groups started to emerge, people were at a loss and were dealing with heightened anxiety and increased depressive symptoms. Uh, And we also started getting calls from children and teenagers who, who were dealing with abuse in addition to an eating disorder. Uh, We think that the reason for the rise of this situation is the living situation, you know, children couldn't go to school anymore, they didn't have access to resources, the school resources, to their support system, whether it's a friend or a teacher, and they had to live with their abusers during the shutdown. Um, and also, you know, even though virtual treatment started to emerge, for some reason, it wasn't an option due to privacy concerns during the shutdowns. So if you are, you're having a call or a video conversation with your therapist, you're concerned that your parents or loved ones or family who are in the next room can hear you. And especially that anxiety, thinking about the scarcity of food, maybe, you know, that, that was a concern for people in the U.S., I mean, it really
3: has been that sort of exacerbation of risk factors across the board, hasn't it? And really, when you think about it also, I mean, change is really difficult for most of us and change, especially then the type of change and the type of sort of flexibility and sort of, you know, the amount and the rapid way in which we had to adapt to kind of this COVID responses as governments sort of did various things um, understandably to keep communities well and safe really for those people with mental health difficulties and especially those with eating disorders where change can be especially difficult I can I think that's really led to quite a significant amount of inability to cope with that change and so we also know that people with eating disorders you know when there is increased stress the ED but becomes kind of the coping mechanism. And so that has also been exacerbated as well there has been that sort of increase in first-time presentation of eating disorders and so again not having necessarily people fully apprised of what an eating disorder is or even aware of you know being able to identify the warning signs or the kind of early symptoms has really been quite challenging I think as well the challenges that were brought upon by the food shortages or not being able to buy particular brands again you know for people with eating disorders we know, that sort of, you know, I think you said it perfectly, the predictability or being able to stick to the routine, you know, factors like foods not being readily available. And also, you know, when we saw people stockpiling foods for someone who struggles with having more than what they feel comfortable to be able to manage at home and so suddenly having to maybe stockpile food because that's just the reality in case the supermarket runs out of something but then that sort of you know creates more anxiety because that can be quite triggering for the person themselves and so then you know potentially for those who struggle with binging and restriction that cycle is heightened further because of things like that and, you know, especially here in Australia, as we sort of navigate these different lockdowns, and we've also kind of, you know, found ourselves in positions where we can't leave the state. So often, you know, the lockdowns are also state bound. So families haven't been able to see each other. Families have been through some very tough times. We've missed out on celebrating with each other. But more sadly, and I think what's going to impact is we missed out on grieving together when unfortunate circumstances yes. have led to that. And so, you know, the impact of that, I think, is just going to be there for years to come. We know eating disorders thrive in isolation and secrecy and really, you know, COVID has been that perfect storm in a way you know it's allowed for isolation we've talked about sort of physical distancing or social distancing social isolation and so forth and you know this idea being that we're not socially distancing we're physically distancing but being socially connected has been something that's really important Um, that's been an important lesson I think that we've sort of in Australia been talking quite a bit about as well.
4: People have shared so many challenges and concerns with us, but one of the common points that people consistently raise is that difficulty in accessing appropriate care as soon as they need it. I think initially when the lockdown first happened we actually saw a big decrease in people accessing our services and I think it might be because everyone was maybe in a bit of shock to be honest. I think everyone took a while to process what was going on and I think there was a bit of uncertainty about whether our services were even still open and people were trying to work out you know who was delivering what and what they could do in person and all that kind of thing and I definitely think that the restriction in terms of geographic location in terms of the number of people you could see just that general life restriction definitely impact people's feelings of agency in their own lives from what i've heard i think that would be a good way to describe it generally and it definitely left people feeling very out of control maybe of the situation and they really felt quite overwhelmed by by the continual you know changes in restrictions and things like that under the public health measures
6: During the early stages of the pandemic as well, we were hearing that people were finding it difficult to be able to access safe foods they need for a meal plan, for example. And some people actually reported binge eating more, uh, for example, if a household member was stockpiling food.
1: Broadly speaking, we've seen kind of three categories of situations where, firstly, people who were in recovery have, have relapsed. People where it's been in a kind of a pre-existing issue, it's gotten really intense. And then the other group of people is people who've been newly diagnosed across the past year and a half.
2: You know, a lot of people started baking or in a way, there was this pressure on everyone uh, to be, to to use their time productively. Um, And also you talked about social media and just want to comment on that. I think social media is great and can be a great tool in creating supportive communities. uh, But I guess someone should be really watch out for uh, some negative content as well, especially when it comes to eating disorders. Uh, So for that reason, you know, there is more needed. You know, the the social platforms and our organizations should do more in terms of protecting and providing a safe environment platforms for these people to support each other um, uh, instead of encouraging disordered eating, compulsive exercise and all of the negative uh, content that we see sometimes on these platforms?
3: So much in the social media and the media are about sort of, you know, hear the terms like COVID kilos and COVID curves. Um, You know, I've really got to work something out around my COVID curves or drop the drop or shed the COVID kilos. It's really kind of really unhelpful narrative, as we know, when people are struggling with kind of, you know, body image difficulties or um, disordered eating, and also like this sort of focus that's been there on sort of, you know, being using the lockdowns as an opportunity to kind of detox and whether it's from technology, whether it's from all of the kind of, you know, um, numerous activities that we all tend to engage in running from one thing to another, but also around food, there's been a lot more focus around that sort of the clean eating and the healthy eating and we know that you know some of these messaging can be really challenging for someone who is struggling with an eating disorder, and also for those, again, you know sort of people who perhaps don't have an eating disorder or sub-threshold kind of eating disorders at the end of the day, how it impacts them, and how those messages are received and then interpreted can be quite dangerous
5: as well. I would say that you know a lot of the fatphobic messages, That were being amplified everywhere and unfortunately still are amplified in many places had uh, a pretty immediate effect as well so you know jokes about gaining weight during quarantine misinformation about people in larger bodies being more susceptible to the virus so all of these things um, were definitely coming up for many of our group members right away
6: you know now we're coming out of lockdown you do see a lot of stuff on social media you know nearly as bad as the whole beach body thing um in the lead up to the summer that you'll see you now we're coming out of lockdown you're having to go back into the office again you can go back to the pub again do you not want to look your best you know here's about camp so it's quite concerned that we're we're seeing quite a lot of that too And i think really um we should all be being a lot kinder to ourselves and each other and just being thankful that those of us who have managed to come out the other side of this with our mental health and physical health relatively intact. I I think that's a wonderful thing to celebrate, you know, and never mind, let's pretend the pandemic didn't happen and we're all back to our pre-pandemic weight and, you know, mental health, mental wellness.
1: And how then would you say the the organisation has been impacted and how has it had to adapt
2: I mean, we always, you know, we still work from home. We always talk about Zoom, Zoom fatigue. Uh, however, it's just, we got used to it. You know, human beings can adapt very quickly to different environments, uh, thankfully. So uh, it's not really unusual anymore to have meetings in, in Zoom or checking in with your grandparents in Zoom. Um, so it's changed the world uh, permanently in a way
3: you know, even though we're oceans apart, this sort of, you know, common and shared experience, I suppose, as people have tried to navigate their way through some really difficult situations through lockdowns and uncertainty brought on by kind of, you know, the health crisis that we've all faced. And at the same time, then also thinking about, you know, for organisations like Butterfly, and I imagine for yourselves as well, how do we adequately respond to this sort of increasing demand on services that we have seen you know i think that's been a real struggle i think one thing after another to be really honest with you i mean you know we started off with those sort of challenges again that i imagine that most people around the world faced in terms of you know our staff faced that sort of challenge of quickly having to pivot our service delivery to an online format you know butterfly uh Pre-COVID, we have sort of our national helpline, which delivers services online through a web chat format. So there's um, some platforms that were sort of readily geared in some way to kind of digital mental health and service delivery. But we also had a number of face-to-face programs that we used to run. And so really, you know, there was a challenge there for staff in being able to pivot service delivery to an online format using telehealth, adapting our programs in a safe manner, You know, we've seen an increase in the number of people who are accessing our national helpline But really, sorry, going back to that bit about adapting programs in a safe manner, I think that's a challenge, again, that's been sort of, you know, documented in the field in the sense that, you know, when we're talking about eating disorder programs, things like meal support, how are you going to be able to do this, you know, on an online setting in a safe way for programs where we were offering or requiring kind of people to go through weighing procedures from a safety perspective to ensure that, you know, there wasn't any weight loss or even from an exposure perspective, how do we adapt those? And so these were kind of really rapid learnings, I think, that we had to really put in place. And at the same time, if you think about the people element of it as well, all of our staff, like everyone, were also living this sort of world of COVID uncertainty, homeschooling their children themselves. And so I really do think that it was quite a difficult period for everyone
6: well, we've seen a lot of changes over the last 18 months at BEAT. As I said, we've experienced a, a really significant rise in demand, and as an organisation we've almost doubled in size during the last 18 months. We've been expanding our helpline and support services team to meet this demand, and at the picture in March 2021 Our support services UK-wide experienced over 300% increase in demand in comparison to pre-pandemic levels. So we've had to respond quite quickly as an organisation to to meet that demand. Towards the start of the pandemic, for example, we set up a, a new online support group called The Sanctuary. It's open every day and it's a place for people with an eating disorder to share concerns and advice on how they're coping with the pandemic.
5: We used to run all of our groups in person. Like many organizations and individuals, we had to shift really quickly to online services. This is something we wanted to do anyways. It was in the works, but we had not created a plan for how to do so. So the pandemic forced us to really accelerate this process of researching and planning and creating policies and procedures that would support successful online programs. So we did implement that quite quickly. Um, But of course, you know, there have been some challenges. I would say overall, our transition online has been very successful. But one challenge we've faced uh, over the last year and a half has been keeping up with the increased demand for our services. The increased accessibility of our services has meant that more people can come to our groups and register. So before the pandemic, only people who could come in person to the house we were located in in downtown Toronto were able to attend. And now people from all across the province, you know, people who weren't able to come in person for a variety of reasons can now register. So that's increased the demand as well, of course, is the increase in prevalence and severity of eating disorders throughout COVID. That's increased the demand as well. And so we've had to manage keeping up with this while also navigating increased costs which I think is surprising for some people. There's often the assumption that moving online makes things cheaper and more affordable. But for us, it's actually increased our costs primarily because our groups now have to be co-facilitated. So facilitated by two mental health professionals, whereas in person, many of our groups could be facilitated by one person. Since that group was happening in a house with other people around. In case there was an emergency, someone could step in to support. But being online, it's in our our perspective, very, very difficult and, you know, maybe not supportive of the safety of everyone in the group to only have one facilitator. So that's something we've been navigating, you know, as well, changing group norms and guidelines, adapting those to the online space. So figuring out, for example, Are we going to make everyone use their cameras in group, knowing that body image distress is so common, but also wanting to, again, ensure the safety of group members, uh, enhance cohesion of the group. And then lastly, I'll say, you know, working from home has been a change as well for, for all of us. I think this has changed the working culture as well as social and community aspects of the work that we do. So Before the pandemic, when we were in person, there was a lot of, you know, casual connection between staff members, between staff and group members, among group members. So, you know, getting coffee or tea in the kitchen before a group started, small talk, uh, leaving together. Um, But now online, it's really hard to recreate those small pieces of connection, which is, I think, one of the bigger losses um, with moving online, despite all of the, the other benefits.
4: So the biggest impact has been on how we deliver our support services, our training, and our fundraising as well. So at the beginning, we had to cancel all our in-person groups, our face-to-face appointments, and our drop-in centre, I'm sure like everybody else, and move everything online, which was a big change for us. So during that time, we had our helpline, our monthly online support groups, and our one-to-ones, which were delivered through email or phone call. And that's how we're still currently operating, though we're hoping to head back to that face-to-face work soon. Previously, we would have offered in-person training and school workshops as well. But those were temporarily suspended when that health and social care sector really moved into crisis management and the schools were closed. Fortunately, we've worked really hard to translate those programs uh, to go online. And we've started to deliver those remotely this summer, which is great. And we're hoping to get back to that again in person in the new year. And then our approach to fundraising as well. We greatly increased our social media presence and we relied on that heavily when we haven't been able to do kind of, you know, typical fundraising
2: activities. I mean at the beginning of the pandemic all of our staff members started working remotely however we didn't have any pause in our operations or services especially on the helpline prior to the pandemic towards the end of 2019 in October our helpline migrated to a remote platform obviously back then we didn't know about the pandemic so this was kind of a plan that we've been working on for for a you know, for many years. So when I say to a remote platform, I mean that all of our volunteers who respond to our helpline calls, chats, and tests texts were remote. They no longer needed to come to our office. Uh, so we really got lucky with this transition because when the pandemic started, we already had the technology and the structure to be able to support our community. And we also do walks. We also have walks all over the US to create this supportive community where people get together to raise awareness and support each other. Unfortunately, we had to pose those. However, we quickly switched to a virtual uh, environment and we called them virtual walks to continue to bring our community together. And, you know, it's not the same thing. It's, it, however, it still gave us an opportunity to check in with our community and then to make sure that they feel the support and then they are not alone. And the other thing we started doing was we released videos every day called NIDA Connections, where uh, the leaders in our field, our volunteers and our staff members joined for quick check-ins and they provided resources and activities. And I guess it's also um, important to add that 2020 and 2021 have been challenging for everyone, especially for the nonprofit world, in terms of finances and fundraising. Actually, what we've we've seen, which was quite interesting and understandable, was uh, the number of our volunteers increased because people couldn't work. They didn't have anything to do over, you know, during the shutdowns. So we had a lot more volunteers who applied to our helpline to be able to help people. Uh, And we are so grateful for all the help that we've received.
5: Yeah, the increase in need and demand has gone up across the board with inpatient services, outpatient community. You know, we are in a position at Sheena's place where we are not providing treatment or individual therapy. And so we, unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of people come to us in search of those types of care that we are not able to provide. Our services are, are designed in an ideal world to be an adjunct to individual treatment or therapy. And so a lot of, a lot of folks have really high needs. Um, and unfortunately, we're able you know, to meet some of those needs, but not all of them
3: this idea of not being able to have the opportunity to seek help and support as you need it, when you need it in a timely manner, has been really challenging. And I think, again, in the eating disorder community, that's been one of the really kind of resounding challenges um, that we faced as well, because either it's been an overwhelming demand on services, and so services haven't really been able to keep up with the demand that's come at them, Or there's the other aspect, too, where, you know, understandably, a lot of private practitioners, because of, you know, homeschooling and because of all of the challenges that they face in their own life, might sort of be able to offer slightly less services in the face of an increasing demand. And I know a lot of my colleagues who've had to do that, in addition to the stress of everything, carry the sense of guilt and responsibility of not Meeting the service needs or meeting the community needs. And at the same time, how can you possibly work at the same rate that you were working at when you might have one, two, or three young ones at home that you're also responsible for homeschooling? It's just it's unfathomable, it's unreasonable.
1: Just to come back to kind of waiting lists and hospitals. Unfortunately, I think it's it's the same everywhere. People needing kind of medical stabilisation and being more unwell and being kind of more urgently referred has come up a lot over the last year and a half. And I know one example is that the specialist teams here, they've had more referrals in the first six months of this year than they had in the entirety of last year. And post-Christmas period in Ireland was very, very difficult for people. And particularly, I think in March and April, you could just tell there was something... In the ether, I mean, there were psychologists and dietitians posting on Twitter saying they had more referrals now than at any other point in their professional career and a high number of referrals in a very short space of time than what their system was designed for.
2: You know, people who are suffering with eating disorders also have comorbidities that they are dealing with, whether it's OCD, anxiety, depression, substance use, self-harming thoughts. So it's a very complex disorder and being in this environment really exacerbated all the symptoms. It was really difficult for them uh, to be able to work on their recovery. There is still stigma around eating disorders. People really don't understand what they are. They still sometimes think that people do this to attract attention, and we know that's not the case. We still don't know the cause, however, we know the contributing factors, such as you know, social factors, biological factors, and all that, uh, psychological factors. So, whenever these people are trying to integrate back from treatment, people don't understand what they've been through, and sometimes they are not at a place to be able to provide support to them or even be their friends. So, fortunately, sometimes they get calls from friends who are. What should I do? My friend is back from treatment. What are some things that will be helpful to help this person? So hopefully in the future, there's going to be more awareness of these illnesses so that they are better understood. And then we no longer have the stigma. We always uh, talk about what recovery means. Is it the lack of symptoms? Is it better management of symptoms? And it could be different for everyone. You know, everybody could have a different definition of recovery. However, one thing we've seen for sure is that recovery is not linear. There is those ups and downs. And it's really whenever people are going through a relapse or slip, this is when they really need that support. So just reaching out. That's why we always recommend people if they would like to join support groups or checking back with their treatment team or their support system to make sure that they can get out of that, that bump.
3: We certainly had at least one instance where one of our participants who was in a larger body spoke about how previously they had found it to be quite stigmatising when they attended treatment programs and services, you know, again, this sort of lack of understanding or this sort of stereotyped understanding of what an eating disorder is and who it affects. And so this individual spoke about how the online platform allowed them to be able to access the program because those feelings of shame and not belonging or feeling that this program isn't for me even though it's absolutely appropriate that they attend weren't there so kind of those I suppose what I'm trying to talk about there is stigma you know there was a some of that sort of decreasing of stigma that we heard about from at least one of our participants
1: and kind of within the the shift to the online have people shared their experience say, of, of telehealth or having kind of virtual appointments and maybe some of the pros and cons with that
2: for some people virtual treatment is is more convenient and fits better with their lives and schedules i believe that virtual treatment used to be was a response to the pandemic however now became the norm in the eating disorder treatment landscape we hear about a lot of treatment facilities offering this hybrid um, treatment which means you know in person and virtual and college students or students in general uh, older adults or adults in general with with jobs find it a lot more convenient because they can still go on with their lives and also get the treatment that they need
3: been quite positive even um, prior to COVID we had a program that we were funded to develop a virtual group treatment program that was always going to be delivered online so at the beginning of you know in sort of March April when the sort of lockdown started to come into place once we'd sort of adjusted to that we were able to pivot quite quickly to this online CBT based treatment program because we'd already been developing that prior to kind of a pandemic kind of um, in the in the foreground and what we've found through some of the preliminary findings in that program is that we've had some pretty significant retention rates you know something close to 75 percent of people have stayed engaged in treatment for the online program so we use sort of an online telehealth platform and I suppose in some ways you know that's sort of been the silver lining you know we've seen that people have responded well to telehealth consoles. Some of the challenges, I suppose, in terms of the telehealth is, again, in families where they might not sort of have access to devices or even access to have a, you know, I talked earlier about confidential space for clinicians to provide counselling services, but also for people to access services in a space where they felt comfortable and able to talk. I certainly have done a couple of sort of assessments myself where it was very apparent that there was kind of a family member in the background. Now, you know, while we absolutely welcome and, you know, welcome and highlight the importance of, you know, ensuring that we've got loved ones as part of the treatment process, it's very much an informed consent process that goes with that. And I think sometimes those lines have certainly been blurred. And also what you're talking, you know, I think what you were mentioning earlier about that sort of increased expectation or being in closed quarters with people for an extended period of time, while some people have found that helpful potentially where the family dynamic has been quite supportive for those who've already had strained relationships or tensions in relationships that have been you know heightened by the eating disorder being present I think the COVID sort of overlay of lockdowns has certainly added to that strain um, and you know potentially led to lack of understanding you know around that sort of recovery journey i suppose
5: other things like you know where are people logging in from is someone's only private location their bathroom and you know is that triggering for someone else but also does that mean that you know it's the only place where they'll be able to respect the confidentiality of everyone else so these are things that we have had to navigate
2: We've heard people speaking with their therapist in their cars, as you said, in the bathroom, so that they could have that privacy where they can openly share their feelings. Yeah, it's been a very
4: mixed response, I would say, to telehealth. There are some people that absolutely do not like it at all and are busting to get back in to actually see someone and have a conversation and they really value that connection, which I can totally appreciate. But equally, I also have had some people go and this is amazing, particularly people that maybe have like a chronic illness or a disability that now feel that they have more accessible care that it's easier for them to access and that having it there when they're in their own home is better for them. And certainly that is something that we're taking on board is people's different perspectives on on sort of that telehealth aspect.
6: We know for a fact that some people are quite comfortable, especially younger people, you know, very comfortable with the notion of remote interactions and maybe a little bit more open to the idea of not necessarily having to leave their house to meet with a clinician face to face. We know that other people, maybe who weren't as tech savvy or as confident, struggle with that a little bit.
2: It's not really the same as going to therapy or treatment in person. Um, So it's, it's, you know, we've also spoke with uh, providers and treatment facilities and try to get their... Uh, kind of insight about virtual treatment, and one thing that was interesting was they, fu- they actually found it helpful because they get an idea of the living situation because before they never see their patients eat or you know engage in behaviors and this, was, this became really a door for them to be able to see this incidents so that they could come up with better treatment plans so that was that was really interesting for us to hear.
1: And looking at kind of where we're at now, a year and a half on, how are things for people who use your your services at the moment?
4: I think that there are some people who are very glad to have the restrictions easing and they feel that that return to normality, as they say, it will definitely help them. I also think there's people that are deeply anxious about returning, particularly to college, to work, um, to school and what that will mean for the kind of like eating distress that they have been coping with over the past few months.
5: You know, I think a lot of the same challenges persist around you know, dealing with eating disorder symptoms in times of change and stress. And we're noticing new challenges coming up as well. I'd say in the last few months, themes around reentering the world or as things reopen up, what that means for people. So again, maybe some health related anxiety that co-occurs with, with eating disorder symptoms, social anxiety, you know, worries around body changes that may have occurred over the last year and a half and seeing people That one hasn't seen in a long time worrying about comments that might be made
6: we're certainly still seeing a high level of demand from people from northern ireland as i say 2021 that has actually doubled in comparison to the year before so yes i mean people and families are definitely still feeling the impact and that definitely includes access to clinicians even throughout the UK, we're still seeing above a 100% increase in the amount of people needing support compared to yeah the time before the pandemic, definitely. So I suppose, yes, in some ways, I'm sure it can only help that life is, for a lot of people, slowly starting to return to normal again. But I think it will be a while before we see demand for our support going back to the levels that they were before the pandemic. and. Indeed, I'd say it'll be a while before the the clinicians are finding that too. I mean, for example, just to put it in context for you, Barry, Beechcroft, which is a in patient facility in Belfast, is actually full. That's unprecedented. Unfortunately, most of those young people are experiencing difficulty with eating disorders.
1: And have there been any positive changes you feel have come up over the past year and a half or that people have spoken about?
3: You know, one of the positive things is also that we've had quite a rapid response from our government in sort of in terms of enabling people to access uh, rebates for telehealth consults. Um, We've seen an increase in the number of sessions that were available to people with mental health conditions, you know, and that sort of positive that's come out in terms of, you know, people being able to access services that would have normally been outside of their reach due to kind of geographic boundaries and so
5: forth. Gratitude for the availability of online support has come up a lot as well. So a lot of folks who, you know, maybe live in rural areas or don't have access to any kind of support, despite all of these challenges have expressed, Gratitude of being able to connect with other people with similar experiences and to get support.
4: Some of our service users, again, have found moving more online to be a positive experience. A lot of people find it less anxiety-inducing to interact and open up online rather than face-to-face. And I think it's increased the number of people who can access our services, as it is that more accessible for some people who have disabilities or chronic illnesses. But equally we know face-to-face support and training can be a lifeline for some people and everyone will have their own preference in how they like to be supportive. supported. So something positive that we're taking forward is the idea of taking guidance from the people that use our services about what online provision they would like to keep and what parts of the face-to-face service they would like to bring back. So I think the pandemic has made us aim for delivering a dual delivery type service model that as many people can access as possible. So I would say that's a positive
5: generally, I'd say the the improved accessibility of services is a huge positive change as a result of the pandemic. We actually did a survey a few months into the start of the pandemic, asking group members about their experiences. And we found that significantly more of our group members faced barriers to accessing in-person groups compared to online groups. And so, you know, being online now addresses a few of these barriers, including geography, finances. So paying to paying for transportation to get to an in-person group, for example, physical and mental health barriers as well. So our in-person location is not wheelchair accessible. And so that's of course a huge barrier for many people. So being online, people can be in their own space. This might help with mental health as well. So feeling, you know, anxiety or depression that doesn't allow someone um, to leave the house easily. Folks are now able to to have the comforts of their own home, their pets around them, which I think can be really supportive in those type of online group spaces. So I'd say that, yeah, accessibility has been a huge positive change. Another positive change has been, you know, our ability to offer more educational opportunities to wider audiences. So webinars uh, that we've been able to collaborate with other organizations and reach hundreds of people over the course of the pandemic. You know, having speakers who live maybe in different countries or different provinces, being able to speak about themes like food insecurity and eating disorders, coping with grief and loss, navigating diet culture and fat phobia. So that's been a positive change as well. And connecting with organizations like you um, that are many, many, many kilometers away.
3: Um, you know, there's been anecdotal feedback from clients who attend specifically this group that I was talking about, that it's helped them to commit to the program. It's removed barriers that have been associated with travel time. Previously, our uh, face-to-face programs were running in Sydney, which is a quite large city. Sometimes it can take an hour and a half from one end of the city to the other. So what still counts as Greater Sydney to be able to come onto our premises. And so if you're attending a group that lasts an hour and a half and it's taking you three hours back and forth, that's quite a significant burden in terms of time. So the barrier around travel time has certainly been lifted for a lot of people. We've also been able to extend the reach. So, you know, those who are not in Sydney, who, again, previously would not reasonably have been able to come in to attend an outpatient group program, have been able to access the programs and services, which has been wonderful to see both from a regional or geographic perspective, but also from a perspective of, you know, kind of alleviating some of those other barriers.
1: And then finally, is there anything else you wish to add?
2: Thank you for having this discussion. I think this is very important. And I wish everyone who needs treatment can access services regardless of their financial situation. Um, Unfortunately, in the U.S., sometimes insurance may not cover the level of care recommended or those without insurance do not have many options. So hopefully in the future, we will be in a place where there is more awareness of eating disorders, better prevention initiatives and better access to care.
3: Thank you for the opportunity, I think, to speak about this. You know, it's been in some ways heartening and at the same time disheartening to hear that, you know, we've shared sort of similar challenges, but also, you know, some really positives that have come through as well for us at Butterfly. Um, We've seen an increase in the number of sessions that were available to people with mental health conditions, you know, and that sort of positive that's come out in terms of, you know, people being able to access services that would have normally been outside of their reach due to kind of geographic boundaries and so forth. So it's been wonderful, I think, to connect and to learn a little bit about what's been happening on your end as well. So thank you for the opportunity.
4: If anybody is struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating, recovery is possible. It is possible to get there even if you've been very unwell or unwell for a very long time. We fully support the work Bodywise is doing and we appreciate the chance to come on here and have a chat and share our experiences.
5: Just to thank you for having me on today. It's been a pleasure to speak about this. And although, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done with advocacy, treatment, myth busting about eating disorders... We are making a lot of progress worldwide and it's exciting to see different organizations globally coming together
6: i suppose really just to, to let people know we do have yeah, various online support groups and telephone support services we've actually got longer opening hours now for our helplines which is great and very lastly just to to let anyone know that you know there's nothing to be ashamed of there is help out there you know there's a, a lot of people in the same position And obviously, if you're worried about yourself or someone you know, we'd always encourage you to contact your GP as soon as possible. And if you're unsure what to say, we have a really good leaflet on the BEAT website that you can download that'll help you with that conversation. But just to remind people that even though it might seem a very long way away, recovery is absolutely possible with the right support. And the sooner you reach out for help, the the sooner, the sooner you'll get
0: better. And that brings us to the end of the episode. We'd like to thank all of the organisations involved for connecting with us across many different time zones and sharing your experiences. We look forward to speaking with you all again soon. You can find details of each organisation in the episode show notes. Thanks for listening.